Welcome back, everyone. This is Homeschool.com's 2008 Winter Homeschooling Teleconference. My name is Rebecca Kokenderfer, and I'm your host for that event. Coming up next, we're going to be talking to Kim Colbertson about the Teen Song Journal Workshop. So if you have a child who loves to write or hates to write, I sure recommend having them on the call or at least having you on the call so that you can advise them. I'm going to turn the reins over to Kim during the next 50 minutes rather than doing a back-and-forth interview because she is an excellent, excellent writing instructor, and she's going to take you through some ideas and some prompts to really bring out the writing genius in yourself and in your child. Uh, Kim Colbertson has taught high school English, creative writing, and drama for the past 10 years in both public and private schools. Currently, Kim works for Forest Charter School in Nevada City, California. That, uh, that Forest Charter School is a progressive, personalized learning program, and she's working on her second novel. Kim sees her writing as an extension of her teaching. Her young adult novel, which is so beautifully written, it's called Songs for a Teenage Nomad. It's like poetry. It's so beautiful. It was published by Hip Pocket Press in June of 2007, and she has written short fiction for Cicada. I hope that that's the way of pronouncing that, Kim. C-I-C-A-D-A. Yeah, I think it's cicada, but I think it's also pronounced differently depending on who you're talking to. Okay, so I'll go with cicada. Is that the noisy bug where I love the sound? Yes, yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, now, she turned her book into a script adaptation of uh, Songs for a Teenage Nomad. Congratulations for that. It was picked up by UCLA's Graduate School of Film and Television. Thank you. Uh, Kim tours with her novel through schools, camps, and nonprofit student support organizations. I'm trying to talk her into touring with the homeschooling conferences across the country as well because her writing workshops are targeted and and really terrific for teens. Uh, She lives in Nevada County, California with her husband and three-year-old daughter. So, Kim, thank you so much. Welcome, and I'm going to turn the reins over to you so you can work your magic for our listeners. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I appreciate it. And thank you so much for this opportunity today, and welcome to all the students listening. Today, we're going to be working towards creating a song journal by focusing on some specific writing exercises. First, though, I want to explain a bit about what a song journal is. Many people have songs that make them think of a place or experience in their lives. Perhaps the song reminds them of a trip they took or of a sport they played or of a friend or parent who is important to them. Music is a significant part of our culture and one that is also deeply personal. And it was certainly a a motivating force in my novel when when I wrote Songs for a Teenage Nomad. Each of us walk around with our own soundtrack. In my novel, the main character, Callie, keeps a song journal. In the first chapter, she tells her high school guidance counselor, Mr. Hyatt, that, quote, Last year, I started writing down memories I get from songs. I hear one, mostly older songs, and I write down the memory it brings, like glimpses of my life as I remember it, snapshots, end quote. Small pieces of these journals open each chapter of the novel and give some insight into Callie's relationship with her mother. Callie's life has been a nomadic one. She and her mother have lived in 12 places in eight years, and Callie has attended 14 different schools. Since her mother doesn't really keep photo books, 
Callie starts to write down memories she gets from songs, creating a descriptive journal of places and people she and her mother have encountered in relation to the music that is tied to the memory. I wanted to read you a short example of one of Callie's journals from the novel, and it starts uh, at the beginning of Chapter 5. In the thick, tar night of Sacramento sky, with bats slipping like arrows across the stars, with Big Head Todd and the monsters on so low I can barely hear them, I see Mom's car pull in, no Dan in the passenger seat, and I know he is gone like the others. I watch her open the car door, step outside, her face bathed in street lamp, another one gone. She loves them so instantly and with such hot light, and then it's like she just burns out, like the star we learned about in science that uses up all its fuel and just stops shining. So in this workshop, I will be focusing on three writing elements that will help lead to a successful song journal. I'll be talking about all three of these elements in more depth, and then again at the end of the workshop, I'll give prompts that will allow you to practice these elements in your own writing and in your own song journal. These elements are, one, we talk about accepting and not blocking in writing, and that's actually um, from a theater term, but I'm going to talk about the way that it applies to writing. And number two, using sensory detail to create specifics in your writing, moving away from generalization and into specific detail in your writing. And number three, the use of personal voice in your writing. And that will be the third, the third element that we cover. So let's get started. I'm going to talk first about that term I brought up a second ago, accepting, not blocking. For those of you familiar with theater, this will not be a new expression to you. I taught high school drama for eight years, and one of the things I worked on often in my theater classes was improvisation. In improv exercises or games, the goal is to interact with another actor around a prompt of sorts. For example, I might tell two actors that they are both in a library and they are trying to check out the same book. They have to act out a scene on that premise. However, they need to always accept what the other actor offers. If one actor says, I had that book reserved, the other actor should go along with that rather than block the action by saying something like, they don't have reservations at this library. The point of this is to allow the scene to evolve in a natural way, with both actors working toward the same goal. Now, this idea of accepting and not blocking works in writing as well. Often, we are our own worst critics as writers. We will block an idea in writing before we even give it a chance to develop. Let's say a line comes into my head when I'm writing that makes me compare my childhood summers to a sluggish bumblebee. I might think my, my summers were like a sluggish bumblebee. But before I get that pen on paper, I might have already thought to myself, that's stupid, or that doesn't make any sense, and I, I, I've already blocked that idea. Sometimes some of the stuff we block ends up becoming our best, most original work. Let me give you an example from my novel. On page 79 of the novel, Callie is sitting outside of 
um, her class, and she's worrying about some things that have happened in her life. I wanted to read you the following description from the book, and then I'm going to talk about why it's an example of accepting and not blocking. I didn't go to the picnic yesterday, and Alexa seemed hurt when she left me sitting here on the aluminum bench by the theater minutes ago. I could have told her. She would have understood. But this is mine. The letter in my hands is a thin paper like onion skin with thick, greasy letters that march in order across the page. I look again at the bottom. Your father, Jake, it says, the signature, now a familiar secret, Jake. Sitting here, I am full of the metal-colored sky. All around me, blue December air coats the world with a strange, cool light. I watch the students flood the exits of the school. They seem robotic in the blue light, magnified. The light brings out the clothes of students wearing color, but the ones in gray, in black, in earth tones, they are muted like they've been washed too many times. My own sweatshirt is the blue of the light, and I imagine I am camouflaged in it. Last night, my mother looked at me, only slightly funny when I coughed twice and told her I was fighting something and going to bed early. I should confront her, demand an answer. My father's email address is tucked in my pocket. I should walk down to the media center and write to him, confront mom or write dad. Instead, I sit on this metal bench and stare at the sky. So now when I first wrote that description, I was actually teaching at a, a local high school in my community here, and I was sitting outside of my room waiting for my students to come to class and for my class to start and got the inspiration watching the students wandering around, and I, I ran inside and I wrote it down, um, the whole idea of the camouflage and the colors and the kids being camouflaged by what they were wearing and this very beautiful blue light that had somehow occurred that day. And after I wrote it, I thought to myself that it, it wasn't working. It, it, it was, seemed strange to me. I was frustrated with it. But I left it in any way. And it ended up actually being one of my editor's favorite descriptions in the book. And so I'm awfully glad I left it in. Um, the point that I'm trying to make is that write things down as they come. Write them down. Accept them. Don't block. That's what editing is for. And that's what you have a lot of time later on to do. So don't um, edit as you go. I was in a writing workshop this weekend and we were actually talking about how much computers are playing a part in us being over editors. We are over editing our work because we're, it's so easy to go back and change things. And so my suggestion is accept, don't block when you're writing, especially in getting that first draft down on paper. At the end of this workshop, I'll provide some prompts that will let you practice doing that. A wonderful resource uh, that I love is Natalie Goldberg's book, Writing Down the Bones, Freeing the Writer Within. And in her book, Goldberg talks about writing as practice. She uses that term, writing as practice, and how it's important to just keep at it. That like running, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And so I really want to encourage that idea of just writing as practice. The next um, element that I want to talk about is sensory detail. 
and we're going to move into a discussion of what, of what that is. Sensory detail is key to any strong piece of writing, whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction. Sensory detail revolves around, obviously, the five senses, sight, smell, touch, taste, hearing. The goal is to write with details that will really place your reader into your piece of writing, to reach for specifics rather than generalities. You want your reader to feel present in your work. So when you're writing, lock your reader in with detail. Specifics will help make it real and fresh, whereas generalizations will create something that feels vague or detached. For example, here is a general line. If I was writing something general, my childhood was safe and confusing. Now, it's a nice line. It's a telling line. It says, my childhood was safe and confusing. The reason, however, that this line is general is that the words safe and confusing are going to mean different things for different readers. It doesn't really show us anything specific about the character saying it. In order to be more specific, to really let the reader in on what this character is feeling, that same idea could be rewritten as the following line, for example, that the line was, my childhood was safe and confusing. And it could be rewritten as, my childhood smelled like the cinnamon cookies my mom used to bake. But I would look at the sky on the sloping lawn of my parents' house and wonder where I fit into all that air. So the safe in that general line is those cookies. And the confusing from that first line is that time spent on the lawn. And it shows you a lot about that speaker. You haven't just said your speaker feels safe or confused. You've also said something about her relationship with her mother or her relationship with where she spends her time. She sits on her lawn and looks at the sky. That is a certain telling, you know, very showing detail about that character. Plus, overall, the language is richer and more interesting, and the reader will feel more engaged with that character or that situation. So you've heard me say telling and showing a couple times in the last few minutes, and this distinction is often called showing rather than telling. I'm sure you've heard that expression before. It's uh, you know, possibly the most overused expression in writing is showing and not telling. Um, when you've written something, I want to encourage you to stop and evaluate it. Ask yourself, am I being general or specific? Is there a way to show this more, more detail, more putting the reader right in the moment, rather than just tell the reader? I wanted to read you an example from my novel, Songs. Um, on page 17, um, there's a, a scene that I have here where she is in her first day of school, and she's going on to the school campus. And I just want to talk a little bit about showing details versus telling details, using this as an example. My new school smells like pickles, salty. It's clogged with a sea of faces that all look the same. The campus stands on a low hill facing the ocean. Across the road from the main office where I babbled to Mickey Mouse tie, there's a small strip of buildings a cafe, a hair salon, a movie rental place, and a doctor's office whose large brick walls keep the students away from the coast. 
I watched the students clumped around me in their between-classes packs. I stay close to a row of outside lockers, wedging myself between the bathrooms and the library building. I want a good view of the quad without being too much out in the open. Even here, I can feel people eye me, the new girl. No matter how many times I've done this, my stomach is always full of bees. Newness is nothing like riding a bike. Your body has no memory of it, and it doesn't end up with a fun ride. My eyes fall on a group of girls in short skirts who are laughing with some boys. A zipper-thin girl with a thick blonde ponytail has her arm draped casually around a dark-haired boy in a blue and green football jersey. Popular. I look away. I realized by third grade I would never be one of those girls. I'm not tiny or bouncy. I'm cursed with big bones and one-toned brown hair that refuses to fall the way it should. Not like their hair, lightened, glossy, and smelling of flowers and fruit. Even when I buy special shampoo, my hair smells like hair. And in that scene, um, the details that are used in there, her ideas coming through about her stomach feeling like bees. She's not just saying, I was nervous. She's describing what nervous feels like to Callie, her idea that her hair, she has insecurities the way I think most of us do, and the way she, she uses detail to express that insecurity. And now, I'm not suggesting you can never tell something that the character is feeling or use telling language. Certainly, in several places in my novel, Callie tells the reader some things. The key thing is making sure you're being purposeful about it. And if you're going to use a telling line, Infusing the language around it with sensory detail, with showing, so that you place your reader in that moment. In his book, The Art of Fiction, John Gardner writes about the need for a, quote, precision of detail, end quote. And he talks about needing that precision of detail in writing to give the writing truth. By precision of detail, he means that you create a rich setting for your work. You put in details of place and person. You talk about the action in specifics. Set your story or your memory in the place where the action is happening. For your song journal, maybe your memory was of a lake. Uh, for us, it would be maybe Lake Tahoe, which is near us. In that journal, show your reader the trees the blue of the lake, the smell of pine, the feel of sand, and in the action, who was there? What gestures was this person using? Don't just say he gestured. Show the gesture. Say he waggled his finger at me, like getting into the actual detail of what was there. What objects were involved? Don't just say you ate a sandwich. Say you ate a peanut butter sandwich with honey. That says something in its detail. Was your bathing suit red with white polka dots? It's these details that jump the work off the page and bring a piece from general to specific. At the end of this workshop, I'll have a prompt for you that will help you practice this kind of detail. And so our last element that we're going to talk about today is personal voice, and it's also the shortest of the elements that I'm going to be talking about, but I, I think in some ways it's the most important one. Our last one today, then, before you start to create your own song journal, is personal voice. And I want you to remember this one very important thing. You are the only you. 
probably sounds ridiculously obvious, but it is actually your number one asset. I used to try to make my writing like someone else's. In high school, I really, really tried to write stories like Judy Bloom or Stephen King or whatever other, other writer I had just read a story of at that moment and wanted to emulate. And it wasn't until I had a writing professor in college who told me, Kim, your voice is yours. It's rich and unique and original because it's yours. And there is only one voice in the world that is purely you. Be true to that voice and just keep practicing it. Improve on it. And I loved that he said that to me, that idea of always improving on what you already have. Um, I don't think there's anything else really that we can do or strive to as, as writers. I have carried that advice with me ever since. You will have influences, and other writers will inspire you. They should. That's why we read, and it is so important for writers to read and to read writers they like as well as writers they don't like because you can learn a lot about writing from a writer that you're not liking that much. In his memoir on writing, Stephen King, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, memoir on the writing process, Stephen King talks about how important it is to read writers who are better than you, who are different than you, to be aware and in awe of other voices. But that doesn't mean to copy them. It means to use them to inspire and then go practice your own voice. Make your writing voice the best version of what it is, yours. Okay, so now here's the song journal. Now that we have those three elements that we focused on for today, it's time to look at writing a song journal. Callie's journal centers around the music in her life that has shaped her, that has brought her to where she is when the novel begins. Here are some tips for keeping a song journal of your own. But remember, a song journal, like the songs that shape it, is unique to the person crafting it. So give it your own spin, your own angle. These are just some ideas to get you started. I, so obviously you're going to start with a song journal, you're going to start with songs. You're going to start with the music that has significance to you somehow. And so start by selecting songs that mean something to you. The type of song that always sparks a memory for you when you hear it. And then use the title of that song as the entry in your journal. In your entry, describe a scene or a memory in your life that the song brings to you and focus on using specific detail and sensory description to show the memory rather than just tell the memory. You can look closely at what Callie does in her journals if that would help you, but the key is to really put yourself in the memory and describe it as if that memory is vividly happening at that point. Think of it as writing out all the details that make the memory special, the smells, the sights, the tastes, etc. And then when you're done with all of your entries, or even beforehand, um, design a creative cover for your song journal, something that makes it special to you that you can keep and have your songs in their journals in. I've had um, several students tell me that they've been compiling their journals together. Some of them gave them as gifts at Christmas to family members. Um, and it was a really, it was a really sweet idea, and I loved hearing um, what all these different um, people have done with this particular assignment. It's been really exciting. Um, and so now that you have kind of the basis for the song journal, I want to give you some ser a series of prompts 
that you can practice before you start writing your song journal or that you can practice as you are writing your song journal. It's a good idea to practice them in the order I'm giving them. There's going to be three of them because they build on each other, but it's not the only way to do these prompts. So if you find something that's working better for you as a writer, I do want to encourage you to do that. Um, The first prompt is an exercise where you simply finish the following sentences with the first thing that comes to your mind, and I will repeat these a couple times. Um, The first sentence is, my childhood smells like, dot, 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 finish that sentence, my childhood smells like. The second sentence is, when I look at the sky, I, dot, 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 when I look at the sky, I. The third is, touching the rain feels like. Touching the rain feels like. The fourth is, I hear music when I, finish that sentence, I hear music when I. And the last one, number five, is my dreams taste like, finish that. And I'm going to repeat all five of those again. My childhood smells like, when I look at the sky, I, touching the rain feels like, I hear music when I, my dreams taste like. And for each of these sentences, I want you to write for at least two minutes. And remember, you're working on accepting whatever comes into your mind and not blocking your ideas. That's the goal of that particular exercise. In the second prompt, I want you to choose one of the lines from the first exercise you did that you particularly liked, like whichever of those five lines just you felt like you just ran with, and I want you to free write on it for 10 minutes. Really set a timer on yourself because 10 minutes can actually, for some people can feel like an eternity and for some people it can be really quick. I want it to be writing on it for 10 minutes. Turn it into an essay, a poem, a short story, anything. Just write for 10 minutes and see what happens. I want you to concentrate on showing, showing, showing all those details rather than telling your reader. When you've finished that exercise, you're going to move into focusing on your personal voice. And this last exercise, prompt number three, is on focusing on your personal voice. And I want you to finish the following sentence. My favorite things about the color blue are... My favorite things about the color blue are... And again, my favorite things about the color blue are... And you're going to write for five minutes. The focus of this prompt is personal voice. Just let all the things that come to you about the color blue and that are true for you come onto the page. You are focusing on getting your voice onto the page. And I think, honestly, the last two prompts tie very much into that one because really when we just let our true voice come onto the paper, that's when we're really accepting what ideas are coming into our head. Remember that um, prompts are a really important part of the writing process. I actually came to prompts rather late in my writing career, um, much into my junior year of college. I had a professor who did a lot of writing prompts with me. He had a whole course around writing prompts, and I just wish I'd started doing them so much sooner. I recommend doing one prompt each day, either from a book of poetry, grab a line out of it and start writing, or from a snippet of news from a newspaper, or even something you've overheard in line at the grocery store. 
the key is to just start writing and see what happens. Who knows? You may get a really great scene for your novel out of it or a new idea for a short story or even possibly an idea for your college essay. You know, something that just came out of nowhere that you heard and then you wrote on and then it, it sort of just blossomed into a really good idea. I recommend keeping a prompt journal where you write in that journal every day on a new prompt and just put the prompt at the top of the page and write for a specified time, whether that's five minutes or 15 minutes, and just keep filling up journals. That's participating in a writing practice. What we talked about earlier um, from Natalie Goldberg's book about writing as practice. And I want to talk a bit more about the writing process, the practice of writing, and I'd like to invite Rebecca back into this discussion for some questions about the writing process in general, as well as the process for my specific novel, if she's ready to do that. Well, thank you, Kim. I love what you had to say about prompts, because I find that prompts really work well for me. Yeah. Even, even with my own fiction book, sometimes I start off with a prompt, and I liked what you said about not criticizing it, because you're given such a gift, these wonderful ideas that are flowing through you and through your pen or pencil and onto the page. And I really hate to look that gift horse in the mouth Absolutely. by criticizing it. And it really stops the, the creative process if you go into editing mode. There's, there's a time for editing, and then there's a time for just letting it create, creatively flow through you. Absolutely. And I think it's so essential, too, just that whole idea of not blocking whatever prompt you're given to just go with it. Because, I mean, I've been in writing groups before where a prompt's been given, and people have been like, I don't like that prompt, or I don't want to write on that. You know, that, that's blocking. Like, that's immediately saying no to, like, something that just, ha- you know, someone just gave you. And so no matter what prompt I'm ever given or whatever, you know, we have to write on in a writing workshop, or I just go with it. And some of my best pieces have come out of prompts that I thought were kind of silly that I wasn't that into, and then suddenly this amazing piece of writing came out of it. And I think it's so important, too, that when our children are doing the writing, that we're not correcting it and putting red marks all over it. Absolutely. Because I always told my children, I said, that's what an editor is for. You just write. You've got something in your heart, something in your mind you want to say. Just put it down on paper, and if you need to, then we can proofread it, and then we can edit it. Absolutely. So can you talk a little bit about where your ideas come from? I mean, How do you know which idea will end up being one that you follow through to to the end? You know, I have so many ideas, and I think that's a, it's a good problem to have. Um, they come at all times. They're just all around me. Ideas are all around me. I can see someone crossing the street with their dog, and suddenly they're becoming a character to me, someone who's trying to find something or who is meeting someone. And that is something I think that happens to you the more you start writing, is suddenly all around you, you just have ideas. In her section on plot in her book Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, Anne talks about how it's important to start with character. Know your characters, their dreams, their likes and dislikes, their fears, their hopes, that plot will emerge out of their interactions with each other, their obstacles and their heartaches. That's where plot comes from. And I tend to agree with her because I'm a real character-driven writer, but there's also writers who just have a great plot and a great story idea and a great conflict. I'm always sort of jealous of those writers. I think that when they come up with that really grand plot idea, that, that's such a gift. Um, but I just, I always sort of instruct my students, especially those who are plot-oriented, that just to make sure their characters uh, don't become just pawns or talking props for a plot line, that they really get to know their characters. And as far as following an idea through to the end, I don't think I ever know until it's 
finished. I've certainly put aside novels that are 50 or 100 pages in because it wasn't compelling to me anymore. And believe me, if it's not compelling to me, it's not going to be compelling to my readers. Um, and I think, you know, I have a really good friend who's a writer, and she always says, write the book you want to read. And um, I think that's what ends up happening is we tend to write a book that we fall in love with and that we fall in love with these characters and their stories. And so when we fall in love that much and we, we tend to take it and just complete it till it's, it's over. And I think one of the hardest parts, and especially for me with songs, was knowing when it was over and, like, letting it be done. Um, another part of, of it is just sticking to things. Writing is a disciplined art. This is part of that practice we were just talking about. And some of us are more disciplined than others. I'm actually not as disciplined as I should be. Part of this is because I'm me and I tend to look for 20 other things to do instead of write sometimes. And part of this is because I have a three-year-old daughter and she always takes priority. But what I've had to do over the years is start to really force myself into a writing practice and, and realize that, if I can find it like a process that's working, I tell myself I'm going to write half an hour every day, and oftentimes I just end up for writing more than that. And I think that if you commit to that process and stick to it, if you tell yourself, I will write for 20 minutes a day, that's a great start. And like the other day, I sat down for half an hour and ended up writing for five hours. And so, you know, sometimes that just happens and you find yourself writing more. I like that suggestion, too. Because um, my, for my son, for example, he wants to write an hour a day, but sometimes that feels overwhelming. Yes. But you want to keep the positive habit. So yes. I, I tell myself and I tell him, hey, even if it's just for 10 minutes, you've yep. honored that commitment, you've sat down. And then like you said, a lot of times it turns into three hours. It does. But at least by setting the timer or making a commitment just to keep the habit. It's like exercise. Maybe you're not going to exercise for an hour that day, but even if it's just 10 minutes, you've, you've kept that positive habit and honored that commitment. And I think most, you know, I was at a writing uh, class taught by Isabella Allende, the, the novelist, when I was in college. She was a guest speaker in one of my classes, and she talked about how important it is to keep that commitment each day and how important, even if you sit down at your computer or your typewriter or your journal and stare at it, that it's important to sit and it's important to stay there because it is so easy to find other things to do. And it keeps the momentum, too. You don't have to keep starting fresh every day. Right. Absolutely. What was the impetus for your book, Songs for a Teenage Nomad? Well, I am a firm believer in writing what you know, and that's true across genres. I think when you write characters that are people you know, whether it's in a fantasy setting or whether it's in a realistic setting, you're writing what you know. And I've taught high school for over 10 years. And so many of the characters in this book are amalgamations of students I've taught over the years. I mean, so many students I've had in the past have now approached me and said, is that me a little bit? And I've had to say, you know, a little bit. It is. You know, it is. And it's partly one of the reasons I dedicated this book in part to my students because um, they, they played such a role in, in who ended up in this book. I had one student in particular early in my career. She was a freshman, and she came into my beginning drama class, and she'd been to 10 schools so far and then moved again about three months into the year. And I remember thinking, what do they keep moving from? And, you know, I'm sure it could have been any number of reasons, but I think Callie's story is my little creative answer to that question. Now, music is obviously a huge part of this book but it's not necessarily the music of this current high school generation. Why did you choose the music that you did? You know, at one point in the novel, Callie realizes she has an epiphany, and she, she realizes she listens to her mother's music. She, re- she says, I listen to my mom's music. And the music really is what provides Callie the basis for her memory. The song journals 
do ultimately end up being about her relationship with her mother. It's what it's based on, all the songs that conjure up memories for her based on her own experiences. And her mother doesn't keep photo books, so the music ends up being Callie's way of chronicling her life. It helps her make sense of her own journey. Um, and I think what I was ultimately wanting to showcase is, is the role that music can play in a life, no matter what kind of music, no matter what the generation involves. Did you, you mentioned a lot of lyrics in the book. Did you, um, how did you go about choosing and getting permission for the lyrics that you used in the novel? You know, I started out with almost no lyrics in this novel. I was just giving mostly references to songs and, of course, the titles of the songs. I use each chapter of the novel as a title of a song. An agent I worked with early on suggested that I blend in some more lyrics as she felt it really melded with the poetic quality to the work as well as the role of poetry in the novel. So I put in all these lyrics. I put in 25 lyrics. And and then I found out that it's actually a challenging and time-consuming process to go after lyric permission. Song lyrics, as far as copyright issues, are actually one of the most stringent copyright regulations that you can possibly get into. And so I ended up getting frustrated and, and ended up wanting to take them out completely because just trying to, like, just even search out who owned the copyright. And I was, um, my book was published with an independent press and they had, you know, people working on it from their side and I was working on it from my side just to try to figure out um, how to go about getting that, that permission. And my speaking manager, Karen Shihai, who runs Speakers Management, uh, really believed in the lyrics. And she had read the draft of the lyrics and she said, look, why don't you pick five or six that I re- and you know, that you really want, and I'll go after them for you. And um, she did, and she got them. And I felt I was so excited that she did that because it really mattered in the novel as far as the story goes. And she went after the rights for me, and I'm so grateful to her for that because they really enhanced the book. It was actually a funny story because we were waiting for Paul Simon's permission on one of the lyrics, and he was on tour. And so getting through all the channels we needed to get the Paul Simon lyric was actually, um, we almost held, we held the book about a month, a couple weeks longer than we meant to, to go to press before making sure we were going to get that permission from him. Wow, that sounds like a big job and like a lot of compromise went into writing the book. Yeah. Can you speak a little more about that aspect of compromise? Absolutely. Um, I think that now having written a book and I'm working on my next one, um, I've realized that I think compromise is actually one of the greatest things in writing a book. When I started writing, I thought it was going to be a much more isolating experience. You know, I had visions of me and my laptop and a cup of coffee and staring out the window, and it was and I, that's certainly part of the lifestyle. But depending on the process that um, a writer opts for, um, I think they need to know that in this business, that your work will, might not stay exactly the way you wanted it to or initially thought it should. I think most often it doesn't stay exactly the way you wanted to. Um, if you have an agent, you'll get input from that person, and then you'll have a publisher and an editor and perhaps some target audience feedback because it's a business, and there is, even with a small press like the one I went with, there's a market to consider, and the fiction market especially is a really challenging one. Um, but I have found that you just write your book, and then you encounter the other stuff later. And I have found the collaborative part of the writing is one of the best parts. I love collaboration. I love working with other great you know, minds and thinkers and ideas. And so I have found that um, I think I enjoy that part um, almost as much as I enjoy writing the book now. I enjoyed watching my book shift and change and taking it to another level. And so in places where I thought I was really making a compromise, 
you know, I realized through my editor arguing for it that he was right, that it would be better if I showcased this specific thing he was talking about. My husband has read so many drafts of this book and helped so much with its evolution. I had a wonderful publisher. I had a great editor, some key people in my life who are my readers, people I trust. Um, and so I think that writing is a personal art, but that it's also a really shared experience, not just between the writer and reader, but also between the writer and all the people who help get the book to where it ends up. Now, this book is technically a young adult fiction title, but I really liked it, too. I mean, why do you think it is that it <laughs> appeals to a, Yeah, I did. I was <laughs> I loved it. Why do you think it is that it appeals to a wider audience? Well, I, I'm really thrilled with the response I'm getting from various age groups, actually. I did write it um, as a young adult title, but I think, you know, I think it was Madeline Lingle who said, you don't write for children, you write a good story and children might like it, you know, and so it's, I think she has a great point about when you're writing a story, just write a good story. Um, I'm 33 years old and I know people my age who find themselves connecting not only to Callie, but also to her mom and to the other adult characters in the novel. I think depending on what age you are, you get different things out of the book. I just, I think ultimately it's a really human story and that people connect to the humanity in the story, whether they're 14 or 84. Um, I had a sweet moment with my grandfather recently. Um, he's 90, almost 91, and he read it and really enjoyed it. I'm sure partly because I'm his granddaughter, but also he really talked to me about how he remembers feeling all of these emotions in his lifetime, all the different characters. And it was just a really, it was a lovely conversation I had with him and why he really connected to the story. I think this story can bridge age gaps. I have actually had several people tell me they're using it for a mother-daughter book club, which is really exciting for me. And also so much of the music is from across generations. So I think there's sort of something there for every age. And, of course, no matter how old we are, there's always um, an inner teenager in us. I hope so. <laughs> yeah, especially when we're feeling insecure or not that certain, that inner ten teenager tends to come out. I think so. And I think also teenagers, from working with teenagers for 10 years, and they're my most favorite population to work with. And because they're so optimistic and there's such an inherent idealism and they're still so inherently you know, married to their dreams and, have, and their hopes, and I find them to be an incredibly invigorating audience to work around because they yeah. are still so optimistic. It's refreshing. And they're they're fearless they and they haven't, been, they haven't let life beat them down. That's right. It's wonderful. <laughs> so I want to open up the call for uh, questions, but is there anything else that you'd like to add before we open up the call? Well, I wanted to thank all of, all of you for listening today and for writing. Um, something that's very important to me is, is creativity, and I want to really expressly thank each and every one of you for putting your own creative energy and voice into the world. I'm a big believer in putting art into the world, in putting beauty into the world, and I believe it makes the world a better place. So thank you so much for what you do um, as artists and as writers. And I hope you had fun. Um, I hope you will have fun creating your song journal. I actually would love to hear your input and ideas, and always please feel free to email me. My email address is contactkim at kimcolbertson.com. If you go to kimcolbertson.com, you can find the easy little link to, to write to me. But I would really love to hear from you and hear what you're coming up with. Let me spell your web address, www.kimcolbertson.com. Thank you. And that's where people can order your book. Yes. And so, callers, um, all of our lines are full. So please press star six, and that will mute out your individual phone. 
and then press star six again and come out and we have 15 minutes now, 10 to 15 minutes. And I know a lot of you are, have questions about how to encourage your child in writing. Maybe they love writing and they start all these stories and they never finish them, or maybe you have a reluctant writer. And Kim, no matter what the age of your child is, Kim is going to have some good suggestions for you because um, she's helped me with my own children. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to open up the line now. Thank you, callers. Don't be shy because this really enhances the process for everyone. If you're a teen on the call or whether you're a parent and you have a question about your children, please come on out and speak with Kim. There we are. Yes, I hear the call coming down. Star 6 unmutes your call. Did I unmute? There we go. Yes, you are. I'm on. Hi, Kimmy. This is Valerie Stewart from Forest Charter. Hi, Valerie. <laughs> Thank you for calling. Thanks for having me. I'll be brief because I know other people want to. Um, I have at home a reluctant editor. Do you have any suggestions? Yes, I do. Um, first, I think what's helpful is to partner them with um, another reluctant editor and provide some... You know, I like these sentence completion things, like the best part about this first paragraph was a place where I was confused was give them some sentences, give them the language with which to use their their editing skills. Because I think sometimes I think our, our students are reluctant editors because they don't really know what that means and they don't really know how to approach the editing. They don't know the language to use. They, they just want to write good or great next to it, and that's not, um, you know, that's not as constructive as it could be. So I encourage them first to go through their work and find all the things they liked about their piece to really zero in on what's working uh-huh. in their piece, because I think sometimes people think of editing, especially students think of editing, as what's wrong with uh-huh. their piece. And it's also, it's just as important to locate what's working. Because, and sometimes just approaching what they liked about it will then lead to questions about, well, what could make the other parts better? Excellent. Thank you so much. You're welcome. That is perfect. So, can we read those editing prompts again? Because that was really excellent. Okay, I made those up off the top of my head. So let me think back to what I said. I always tell them, like, to go, par- like, if they're doing an essay, I recommend it paragraph by paragraph. The introduction was working for me because uh, the thesis statement could be stronger if, you know, having them sent. And I think just asking them, like, a, a specific line that I really enjoyed in the second paragraph was, you could be more specific specific if you dot, dot, dot. And just, like, depending on the specific writing assignment, whether it's a creative piece or whether it's a, um, you know, an analytical piece, Really step-by-step going through that process with them, but letting them finish the statements, I think, is a really helpful editing strategy. How important do you think it is to edit everything? Sometimes can't you just write for the pleasure of it without having to edit it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think you should. You know, I actually do, um, when I'm teaching English, and I'm taking a break this semester, but I will be back to it next semester, um, I do a thing called Lit Journals with my students where they're reading an outside reading book and they write to me about what they're reading and they write to me about what they're enjoying. And we talk about things like plot and theme and symbol and character, but the whole point of a lit journal is that I never give them critique on their writing. Like I only just basically they get credit if they did it or if they didn't do it, and I give them maybe some suggestions for topics. 
but I do not critique their writing. Spelling doesn't matter. You know, I, none of that stuff matters for these specific little activities. And every week they turn a full page into me for whatever um, reading they're doing outside of, of the normal core literature. Um, and I find that that's a really great place to watch their writing blossom because they're writing it without fear of it being critiqued. And sometimes with homeschoolers, writing can be a weak spot because school kids have to show what they know by writing all the time, Mm -hmm. writing essays, writing tests. But homeschoolers, a lot of times, they tell what they know. They talk about what they know, and that means Mm -hmm. that their writing can be a little weak. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's why incorporating something like a lit journal process into the week. I know I'm planning to homeschool my daughter when she is of that age, and I've already decided that we're going to do like a Friday journaling day where a lot of the emphasis on Fridays will be in journaling and creating sort of a, a description of her week, you know, and memorable moments and things like that so that in telling me things that she's, you know, succeeded with throughout that week, she'll be able to practice her writing skills in a journal Just format. Just keep that writing practice, writing for the pleasure of it, writing as a habit. Writing as a habit, writing for practice. Yeah, that idea that, you know, it's exercising those muscles. It's so necessary. And, and getting in the habit of taking time for it. Yes. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Um, callers, next question, please. Star six will unmute your phone. There we go. Almost. Go ahead, caller. We can, we can hear that you're trying to come into the line. There's just there's over a hundred people on the call. So it takes a minute for them to come down. We're talking with Kim Colbertson. Mm-hmm. Now is your chance to ask our writing expert for advice on how to inspire your child to write, or perhaps yourself. Hello, oh, Kim. There we go. Hi. Hi. I have the hardest time with helping my children to write, I think mostly because it's been so difficult for me. Yes. <laughs> um, I had a difficult time in school. I even finally, I think in my senior year, finally had my English teachers just tell me, just tell me what it is you want to tell me. Right. I struggled with it, and I think by the time I really wanted to do it, it was too late. I really didn't have uh, much training, I guess. So how is it that I can, and when I try with my boys, they're 13 and 15 now, and I really tried when they were younger to try to get them to write, and they really struggled with it. And I think I struggled also because I didn't know how to guide them. What do you do in a a situation like that? Well, first of all, I want to say it's never too late to start writing. Um, And I encourage you, if you're inspired that direction, to, um, to pick it up. I think... Having been in a lot of writing communities, it's, I love hearing how many um, of the fellow writers I've worked with didn't even really pick up a pen or pencil in any sort of purposeful way until in their 30s and 40s, you know, when they started to feel like it, they weren't going to be graded anymore on it and it'll have all these expectations attached to it. Um, but as far as working with um, your boys, I, one thing I've done as a writing teacher in high school is I've tried to remove some of the um, – scary part of writing around the idea of like formatting and you know this big block of words on a page and I've tried having my reluctant writers um, do comic books and stuff with me where they are 
putting character names, you know, putting characters on a page in a comic book format, and then, you know, writing in the dialogue and writing in what's being said, writing in the description of the scenes. Um, I actually used to, when I taught the Odyssey, I had them do a whole storyboard project around the Odyssey where all they did was sort of, um, you know, graphically illustrate the book and then write in what is Odysseus saying here and what is happening here with um, this setting and this scene, and then give one line or two at the bottom around of analysis. Because I think sometimes um, this big format of the five-paragraph essay is just, it's incredibly intimidating. And in some cases, you know, it's not necessarily the direction of the future of writing for a lot of what these kids are going to be needing writing for. And so the key, the key thing is, is getting them to look at, at analysis and writing out a line of analysis or a line, and you know, a line here in other formats. I happen to be a big fan of screenwriting. Um, screenwriting, you can get a program called Final Draft, and it's a screenwriting program that puts it automatically into the screenplay format. I do a lot of screenwriting with my re- reluctant writers because they're so visual, Right. And because this generation is so visual, and they can write out a scene description, write what characters are saying, explain to me what's going on with the character. And I love the exercise of having them read a short story and adapt it to a script. Mm-hmm. You know, and how would that look? And just getting them to kind of write and learn the process of pen to paper or fingers to laptop, you know, and without maybe some of the um, the sort of pre, you know uh, more classic versions of of writing. Mm-hmm. Because they're really great storytellers. They right. love to tell stories, and they love to imagine things, but I just have the hardest time trying to get it on paper. Absolutely. And I think some of, some of it they fear mom's going to go over it with the red pen. Right. And that's going you know, um, I've had families I've been working with where we've banished the red pen for a month <laughs> or two months. You know, it's just not allowed from uh-huh. anybody, you know, because it's important that – Part of it is, is a block. Part of it is getting over, you know, and, and looking at specifically why don't I like to write? Why, mm-hmm. Especially for my, my boys who are wonderful storytellers. You know, they'll come up and they'll tell me a story, and I'm thinking, wow, write it down, and they're like, no thanks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so looking at alternative ways to start practicing that narrative, whether that's through, I don't know if they like to draw. We got comic books, I think, are a great way, that kind of um, creating a comic book format. Mm-hmm. Um, having them do things like create a soundtrack mm-hmm. for their book they're reading and then um, having them write to you about why they chose that song. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like making the writing not what's the primary focus, but using it as a secondary tool to what they're trying to say to you. Uh-huh. It takes away some of the um, the fear around it. Right, right, okay. Well, how how long do you usually give your students, you know, an allowable amount of time to come up with an idea, to get it started? How long do you work on it? I mean, what's a reasonable amount of time that I would be spending on these reluctant writers? On these reluctant writers? Well, you know, I think that really depends on what project it is you're trying to get them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm a huge fan of journals. Like every day, just taking out a journal and telling them, hey, I want you to write on this prompt, green bug. Mm-hmm. You know, and just going from there. And, and they're like, what? Uh-huh. It's just saying, you have to, I don't know, whatever you want it to be, five minutes mm-hmm. every single day. Okay. Or um, have them bring prompts to the table, snippets out of newspapers they have found, lines from movies they've liked, things that they can go, hey, Mom, I've got a great prompt for today. Let's write on this. Mm-hmm. And forcing each other to, like, come up with things, whether it be a poem or a short story or just a rant. My teenagers are big fans of ranting. Mm-hmm. I used to do a lot of write a rant about something that made you mad this week. 
um, what you think about, you know, fill in the blank, and just have them rant at me and write like they're speaking, mm-hmm. and then not touch it. Like, not go through it and try to make it a written piece or anything, but just, you know, so that they get that practice of writing, putting the pen to paper. Okay, okay. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. And, Kim, don't you think it's so important, too, that as parents we watch our own languaging about writing yes. to make sure we're not saying things like, oh, I know writing is hard, like like we do with math. Oh, math is so hard, writing is so hard, I hate writing, or something yeah. like that. As a daughter of a math teacher, she was a math teacher for 30 years, I can really, really appreciate that because it is so much about the language we use with it and, and also just um, making it fun. You know, I I think sometimes we're so serious in academics, you know, and we're so serious about, like, it needs to look like this or it needs to be this. And, you know, my mom used to take me out on a football field and make me, you know, put yarn between three people and talk to me about why the triangle looks that way and what's in a triangle and all that. You know, she made it fun for, for my sister and I to understand geometry. And I think it's really important for writing that they have fun with it. You know, and it's going to be hard sometimes because sometimes it's hard for me, and I'm a professional writer. But, I mean, just making sure we change up what we're asking them to do. It's like, And not make writing a chore. Like every time they read a book, they have to write a book report about it. Yes. I used to think, wow, what a way to wreck reading. That's right. <laughs> I used to say that to a friend of mine who used to assign, like, copying, you know, writing out sentences or whatever as a punishment in his classroom. He was a science teacher. And I said, thanks for making them hate writing more. Oh, yeah. You know, and it's the same thing. My PE teacher friend of mine used to get so frustrated when teachers would make kids like run laps or things as punishment. I think you have to be considerate about what you're using as punishment because it definitely has lasting impact. Oh, that's a good point. Exercise <laughs> as punishment, writing lines, writing as a yep. punishment. <laughs> yeah, you've been a bad kid. Now get in there and do your algebra. That's right. <laughs> well, Kim, we're out of time, and this has been so excellent. I Thank knew it would you. be. Thank you so much. I so appreciate the opportunity to be here today. So we've been speaking with Kim Colbertson. She is the author of a beautiful book, Songs for a Teenage Nomad. Her web address is www.kimculb as in boy, E-R-T as in Tom, S-O-N dot com. So thank you very much, callers. Please join us again tomorrow. Tomorrow will be day three of homeschool.com's 2008 Winter Homeschooling Teleconference.